My husband is a lot better at the introductory part of a sermon. Anytime we travel somewhere, he's really good about uh, being personable and sharing about who we are, and I have a tendency just to get down to business. <laughs> uh, but it is good to just kind of stand up here. I don't think I've ever been up here since we've <laughs> uh, been attending Solid Rock. Um, so I'm just going to, you know, kind of catch my breath and get my bearings. This morning I want to talk about the laughter of God and the bread of life, which they will connect eventually, but <laughs> the laughter of God and the bread of life. I've been reading a book by Lauren Winner called Wearing God. The subtitle of this book is Clothing, Laughter, Fire, and Other Overlooked Ways of Meeting God. Now, we all have our places. If I asked you, where do you meet with God on a regular basis? I'm sure you have those places in your mind. Maybe there's a particular chair that you go to uh, in your, your house, and there it is where you meet with God. I'm sure all of us could say, well, when we come to church, we know that we are going to meet with God. But then there are those maybe some uncommon places. Maybe it's in an art museum where you go and you, and you walk among the beauty uh, and the artistry that you feel God's presence there. I know that, uh, like Austin says, we used to live in Jamaica, not close to the water, but when we got to the beach, we met with God. You know, we could feel God's presence there. Likewise, Stuart and I, I, I know that we often meet with God at authentic Mexican places, right? You could find God there. Uh, but there are those common places where we meet with God and those uncommon places where we know God is there, but we're yet we're still surprised by his presence. Um, Winner says that God has a habit of hiding in the same places. Thus we know where to look for him. In a short article by Belden Lane, he, he writes an article on the hiddenness and the playfulness of God. And he recounts when he used to play hide and seek with his children. And he said he would get a little frustrated with them because it didn't appear as though they were playing right. Uh, he would close his eyes and start to count and his son would run off to the perfect hiding place. And once he got there, he would yell out, I'm ready, and thus giving himself away. And the father, Belden Lane, would say, you're not getting this. You're supposed to hide. You're supposed to not reveal yourself. But any of us who have played hide and seek with our children know that they cannot contain themselves. They, they will laugh and they will giggle and they will eventually give themselves away. And he said, you know, maybe it's not me so much that wasn't understanding the game. Or, or maybe it wasn't my children not understanding the game. Maybe I wasn't understanding the game. Because part of the fun of hiding is being found. And that's what his children intuitively knew, and yet he wasn't getting. The fun part about hiding is being found. No child wants to remain hidden forever, and neither does God. 
he says that his daughter would play the game wrong as well, <laughs> but differently than his son. Uh, when he would start to count, his daughter would run away, but then quietly sneak back around and stand next to her father by home face and that she would try to contain her giggles and try to control her breath until dad would you know, count down to zero and about ready to say, ready or not, here I come. She would burst out in delight and with laughter and touch home base. And he says, even God, especially God, discovers the highest joy in hiding only so as to be found. He says, still to this day, it seems, God is for me a seven-year-old daughter slipping back across the grass, holding her breath in check, wanting once again to surprise me with a presence closer than I could ever have expected. Sometimes God's presence sounds like laughter, or at least that's how he gives himself away. We can find God in those uncommon places, and we listen for God to give himself away. Winter says that God's laughter is notable in the Psalms as well, but the laughter in the Psalms is not so much a playful laughter, but more of a laughter of derision. She says in Psalm 37, verse 12 and 13, that the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that their day is coming. For some, God's laughter sounds like comfort, sounds like joy, and sounds like relief. But for others, God's laughter sounds a bit more ominous. For those who have been oppressed or in sorrow or in despair, God's laughter sounds to them like justice. But for those who are wicked, those who are doing the oppressing, God's laughter is anything but a source of comfort. Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. He says in verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then in verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. And woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Winner says that the laughter of God is inseparable from God's justice. In the here and now, the kind of laughter that friends of God pursue is laughter that is proleptic, that is laughter that hints at or partakes of the world to come. For the oppressed, for those who weep, for those who mourn, we can be comforted when God reveals himself in his laughter. For his laughter speaks of his nearness 
and his justice. The first laughter that sound, the first the sound of laughter in the Bible, the first time we hear the sound of laughter in the Bible is the laughter that God provokes. And I'm talking about the story of Abraham and Sarah. And when God announces to Abraham and Sarah that they are going to have a child, both Abraham and Sarah laugh. This announcement that they will finally receive this child of promise provokes laughter. Genesis 17, 17, it says it like this. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old. Can Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? I mean, that is funny, <laughs> you know? I would laugh if God said to me, you are going to have a baby, you know? It's just, you know, not the time in life that I'm expecting that. But here, Abraham and Sarah, they laugh. But God has the last laugh. He says, your child's name will be Isaac, which means let him laugh. Let him laugh. And after the child is born, Sarah says in Genesis 21, God has brought laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. Sarah as a prophetic moment here, because she's right. Everyone who hears about this story will laugh with joy with Sarah. They will laugh with hope because of this child of promise, this child whose very name speaks of God's nearness. Sarah's laughter, her child Isaac, is the sound of God's nearness. It's the sound of God's promise. In Luke 2, our lectionary reading for today, the laughter of God and the bread of life, these two uncommon places of meeting where we meet with God are found here. And we're talking about Simeon, who is at the temple. And Simeon was a typical a figure in the temple. People saw him um, all the time there. But I wonder what prompted Simeon to look toward Mary and Joseph. You know, I, I, I just wonder, did a little baby giggle from God, <laughs> uh, from the lips of Jesus, call Simeon's attention to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. The word says in verse 27, Luke 2, moved by the spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, your redemption, your deliverance, your justice, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Maybe 
like I said, when, when Simeon is holding this child, obviously other people around him could hear his voice ring out. And he, he was a, a figure in the temple. And so I'm assuming that people knew who Simeon was and knew the sound of his voice. And so when he is holding this child, Jesus, and crying out, my eyes have seen your salvation. I imagine people looking towards Simeon, wondering, what is he talking about? And in his arms is the bread of life, the baby born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so his presence, Simeon's presence in his voice would have been familiar and people would have looked to see what Simeon was talking about. But Simeon isn't the only prophet who testifies of Jesus' presence, God's promise that day. There was also a prophet named Anna. And Anna, too, never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And she comes up to the family, to Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Simeon at that very moment. And she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Jewish law required two witnesses to validate a claim. The prophet Simeon and the prophet Anna seemed to have fulfilled this requirement as they testified to Jesus' salvation and redemption. If this is the case, Ruth Tucker says, there is something remarkable going on here because one of the witnesses is a woman. Even though the testimony of women was not acceptable in that society. People in Jesus' day longed to hear the laughter of God. They longed to hear that signal, that cry that God was near and that justice was sure. And who knows, who knew that day in the temple that God was closer than they could ever have imagined? Belden Lane says that God disguises himself. He disguised himself in the womb of a young mother. He disguised himself in a lonely manger. But here, God disguises himself in that little baby. And so that we might be irresistibly drawn to union with a grace far closer to us than we ever imagined. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. I remember a time in my life when I was very hungry for the Lord's Supper. Um, many churches in our fellowship only participate in the Lord's Supper once a month, and sometimes, though, abroad, it was less than that. And there was a particular place we were uh, usually in worship in, in Mexico where sometimes we didn't have a communion maybe once a quarter. And I just remember that year just longing for the Lord's table, longing. I was hungry uh, to participate 
in communion. Well, we were due back home to itinerate, to fundraise, and I knew that we would be traveling, and every Sunday we would be in a different church, um, but I wanted some consistency in my life, and so I decided I would find a church that had a midweek service that would serve communion, and so I did. I found a uh, local Episcopal church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where we were living, and um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, so that was like, you know, kind of going home for me. I'm very comfortable there. Um, and, and so I started going there on Wednesday afternoon. They would have a kind of a Bible study uh, right before. They would talk about the lectionary readings uh, for that Sunday, and then they would gather in the sanctuary for communion. Now, different denominations have different language vocabularies. Um, in Pentecostal circles, we, we like to speak of altar calls and we have come to Jesus moments. But um, we have altar calls in the Episcopal Church and we have come to Jesus moments in the Episcopal Church. It's just called the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and so I was longing to participate in communion. I was longing to have that altar call and then have that come to Jesus uh, moment in that Episcopal church because I was hungry and I needed to be filled. So that Wednesday afternoon, I went to the altar and I received the bread and the sip of wine and I had a come to Jesus moment and it overwhelmed me. And I remember tears coming to my eyes and I, you know, I kind of barely made it back to my seat and I was just really completely overwhelmed and undone. And I said something really spiritual to myself like, what is happening with me? <laughs> I just couldn't understand what was going on. Um, even though I longed for this and I was hungry for this, I still was so overwhelmed. Now, I don't want to um, nostalgia is not the best word, but it's the only word I can think of in the moment. Like I said, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, so coming to the altar in the Episcopal Church, receiving the, the bread and the wine was something familiar to me. And there's something about participating in traditions and going back to what you know, uh, and you understand that. And, and so I know that was part of it. Um, Lauren Winner in her book says, that in the wilderness, when the people of God were in the wilderness and God provided manna to his people, it, it is said, some rabbinic traditions say that that manna tasted like whatever they desired. And so God not only nourished them with the manna, he also offered them some delight, some joy in that nourishment as well. And she said, uh, I asked my circle of friends, if Jesus is the bread of life, what kind of bread is he to you? And some said a bagel or rye toast or chocolate tea bread or a crusty baguette. And she says, and she, and she in telling this story, gave me words uh, to for my experience in that Episcopal church that afternoon. She says, some days I wish our Eucharistic meal in the church 
were more, a bit more like a real meal, thick slices of focaccia and glasses of Cabernet. But I have come to appreciate the small wafer, the small sip of wine. In the Holy Eucharist, we take a miniature sip of wine and a small bite of wafer, and we call this God's abundance. And that's what happened to me that day. I was hungry, and he filled me with this tiny wafer and this tiny taste of wine, and I received God's abundance. Michael Bird says it like this, we could say that the Eucharist is the hors d'oeuvres of the coming messianic feast. It is a celebratory feast of our redemption, our inclusion in God's covenant, and our victory over evil. This is God's abundance. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. As the laughter of God reveals his nearness and speaks of his justice, so I believe this meal does as well. I invite you today to, like Simeon, hold on to that infant of Bethlehem, to hold on to that bread of life and listen for the laughter of God. In a few minutes, we're going to have an altar call. We are going to have a come to Jesus moment. And I say this as a benediction. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And as we give thanks and break the bread, may you hear the laughter of God. May you feast on the abundance of God with this tiny cracker and this small sip 